Hello and welcome back to episode two of the From the Start podcast, uh, a series of podcasts chronicling uh, normal people with amazing stories. Um, the last episode featured former SAS trooper Rusty Fermin, and episode two uh, focuses a gent who has had one hell of a life story. Um, I reached out to this individual via Instagram after following him for some time and his sort of adventures up and down the world. So I couldn't think of anybody better to come and tell me his story than Gary Curtis. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Hey, Gary. Thank you for having me. Uh, are you doing, pal, all right? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. I'm good, mate. Good. So I think, mate, best best place to start is from the start. So childhood, what was your childhood like down in, down in London? Yeah, I grew up on a big council estate on the outskirts of West London there. Um, like everyone else in the council estate, didn't have a lot of money. Come from a loving family. Uh, Mum and dad stayed together, wanted for nothing, got a brother. And um, just growing up on that estate, I guess like with all walks of life, you got to, you're weak or you're strong. And at an early age, I began to find out that I could look after myself. And uh, as it went over the years, getting older, I got into boxing through my dad. Uh, was quite a successful boxer. Uh, went on to box for the Royal Marines and then box for the Royal Navy. Um, came out, do a lot of sparring with a lot of professionals, even now. Uh, we're going into that a little bit later on. I got put on my arse in the last one. <laughs> but we're going to that one. Um, so, yeah, I grew up on a big council estate. Um, went to a comprehensive school. Um, didn't like school much. Spent more time bunking, as we all do. And about the age of, I think, probably about 11 I went to a um, a borough show, it's called the Hillingdon Show, and they have all the military come down, you've got all the farmers type sort of things. And I see there for the first time the Royal Marines, and they was doing a, the unarmed combat display team. Then they'd done like a, uh, a terrorist attack the arena, had taken over the arena, and the Marines coming by helicopter and by wagons, doing just basic stuff going up there, lots of noise. And I thought, yeah, I like that. And then these blokes started jumping out of a helicopter and all the rest of it parachuting. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have some of that. And that stuck with me from about the age of 11. Um, I joined the Army Cadets at Southall, which was uh, the RCT. I never got to drive a vehicle all, all my life when I was down there. You know? <laughs> but uh, it just gave me a little bit of a taster for the military. Um, 1982, there was a programme come on telling about the Paras. It was called the Paras. And I thought, oh, they look all right. That ain't bad. I'll have some of that. And about the same time, the Falklands had obviously kicked off. And it was all about the Marines again, Marines this, Marines that. And that just stuck with me. Um, as a kid, everyone else, when I left school, they was out shagging and drinking or doing drugs and God knows what. And um, I was the sad case. I just used to get a bourbon, you know, literally full of sand and bricks, and just used to run with that a couple of miles. And uh, my back was in, in tatters. And uh, 1985, I joined the Royal Marines, you know, um, went through training, got injured halfway through, smashed my knee open. Um, that was a bit of a, a pain, really, because no one wants to be backslided when you're in training. But I went into my next troop, passed out a couple of months later, went to 4-2 Commando, um, done a couple of deployments there in Northern Ireland, West Belfast, uh, for Manor. Uh, the Belfast 89 tour was, um, it was the 20th anniversary for the Troubles. <clears throat> And we got out there and it was pretty much when I see, I still do a lot of the work I do now. And you can sort of see how old school we were to what it is now. Do you know what I mean? It's um, mm. 
there was a lot of things that sort of sort of happened. Not not bad things, but it was a different world as such. You know, there weren't all these phone cameras about and CCTV and stuff. We, we got we got away with things maybe we shouldn't have done. But you know, it's, it was an enjoyable time. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed every time at four two. Um, I went to Pool, uh, Royal Marines Pool, which is obviously home for the SBS. And I'm not SBS by the way, even though I did go for selection. Um, but a nineteen. 90 I think it was we did the um I did our company which is the display team you know got to be essence to get in there got to <laughs> ice, got to ice creams and shit so uh, yeah I got on, got on to that and I did the summer season there which was great um and then from there as I say put in for selection and I actually put in for SRR uh, as it was back then 14 in and um got, went, got taken over to see the adjutant and he said okay Corporal Curtis tell me what you know about Fourteen, in, and I was like, because um, you're not supposed to know anything, are you? And I was like, um, well, not really a lot, sir. And he said, so why do you want to do it? And uh, a lot of my mates were already gone across, and I was like, um, I just fancy a change of scenery, sir. I just want to go across the water and stuff. And he said, well, what do you know about it? And I said, well, not a lot, sir. And he said, okay, look, unofficially, what do you know about it? I said, we've got camp one, camp two, we go and do this, we do that, blah, blah, blah. He said, great. He said, I think I make an excellent candidate to go forward for it. I'm going to put you forward. Um, he said, how long have you been driving, though? Because you actually have, have a clean driving licence, I think, for a minimum of three years, which was quite a new thing brought in because the amount of lads were trashing cars when he was doing the, um, the, the driving uh, part of the course. And uh, I said, what, officially or unofficially, sir? And he said, well, obviously, officially. And I said, uh, well, um, I pretend I'm a brother if I get nicked. <laughs> he said, what do, you, what do you mean? I said, I always carry, it used to be the paper licences without the photograph. So if I've got a tug and I used to just say, yeah, I'm a brother. And uh, he said, no, you can't go any further forward. So that was that. Uh, as I say, I'd done just short of nine years in there and had a great time. Uh, goal 4 one that kicked off. I was asked to take um, part for the embargo, which it was then to join HMS Brilliant. Uh, when we got on board the actual ship, we was doing some dry drills and, and obviously doing drills and skills live. And when we had our team stacked up inside the cab, I was number one in the door. So you got a 90 foot rope to do fast roping or rapid roping, as they call it now. Now we've gone American. So um, we do a bit of fast roping. So I had about 30 foot of rope inside the cab, about uh, 60 foot of rope, whatever, in around me and on me. And you get a pat on the back. So that's out of the cab. They're leaning one cheek onto the actual edge of the helicopter. Look down, hands down, rifle hanging down. Second pat on the back means ships underneath go down and the rest of the team out. I've got this first pat and I looked out and I'm looking down and I've got a second pat to go and I was going, no ship, no ship. And I'm hanging out. <laughs> the crew man just grabbed me, pulled, pulled me back in. And uh, yeah, that was a little bit lively. I could have been tuna fish after that day if I'd have gone. Um, but we got in trouble there a little while because the, uh, the, the ship's crew, Navy crew, they wanted to put their boss on the initial assault team. And we could clear the cab and onto the deck and then start making our way up towards the bridge, probably in about eight to ten seconds. That's everyone out down the road on the deck looking and then fan out. And um, when we got this Royal Navy officer come with us, we'd be literally on the deck at the door whilst he was still coming down the rope. We're like, no, 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 I can't have that. So me being me, um, not not known for really keeping my mouth shut back then, I just said, mate, you're about what we don't want you, you know. And you can't tell that as a, as a young Marine, you can't tell a, an officer that. And uh, that was the end of my, my goal four. I got kicked off the ship. <laughs> you know, that was it. Yeah, well, so well. gutted about that. And all the lads went down. They didn't do a lot anyway. Um, if you look at the footage of 
um, them going into Kuwait, you'll see the SBS going to the British Embassy, and then there's some other helicopters that are coming in there, and that was the ship's party from HMS Brilliant. So I missed out on that, but no, it wasn't noisy. It wasn't a, a live range, a two-way range as such. So it was an easy number. Did the uh, did the Marines get involved with the Kurds, bringing the Kurds down? Yeah, yeah, uh, but I was, I was down at Poole at the time. I mean, that was um, Op Safe Haven. I think that was 40 Commando and a couple of the other lads. Um, just before I left, funny enough, which is about uh, 94, 93, I just short of nine years of my time, um, the Kosovo was going mad, obviously, in the Balkans. And there was on about a task to Pristina. And it was going to be us or the parachute regiment. And at that time, I think chief of staff was uh, Sir Michael Jackson, who is parachute regiment. So they got they got the shout. We was Fredders, you know, absolutely gutted. Um, after that, I got a little bit. Um, I went on leave. I decided to stay out in Ibiza. I thought I ain't going back for a little bit. Stay out here. I went back. Got twenty eight days inside at Portsmouth detention quarters, and uh, that was my second stint in there. And I thought, you know what? There weren't a lot going on in, at that time, really. Um, since then, they've had Sierra Leone, uh, East Timor, the, obviously the Gulf Wars and all the rest of it. Um, they've been very, very busy, Afghanistan, Iraq, blah, blah, and the other little conflicts going on. Um, so I just had enough. I was just thought I'm getting out. So it's just short me nine years, and I said, no, I'm out of here. And uh, I PVR'd, and I got out. But do you know what? I've regretted it ever since, in a way, because there was so much more that I wanted to do in soldiering that I didn't. And I think when the opportunity arose for me to do the contractor work and the consultancy work that I do now, that was like me clawing back my soldiering time. But the beauty with what it is now is I, I don't really answer to anyone per se, but I don't have to bullshit in that around me, if you know what I mean. You yeah. know, I haven't, got that, I haven't got that level of all the actual ranks and stuff to go through. I make a decision on the ground. I, What I do and my decision ultimately leads to people having either a successful job or they're gonna end up being in a bad way. And for nearly, what's that, 20, 17 years now, what I've been doing it constantly, barring two years that I had off for injury, which I'll get into in a little while. Yeah, so, so when, when you come to leave Marines, Gary, did you have a plan? You know, because I know when I come to leave Army, I was just like, a bit like you, it was like th threaders to, to coin the phrase. And I was like, I'm just getting out and I'll, I'll work the rest out when I get out. And, and it kind what, of fell into place for me a bit. Yeah, do you know what? I And foolishly, I as, I guess as a young man, I thought being a Royal Marine Commander, I was going to walk out and walk into any job. Hey, look at me, look at me, boom, boom. You know what I mean? It's just like, it uh, wasn't the case. And I had no plan. Um, and I was talking to, uh, funny enough, I went to a barbecue, a mate of mine, Frank, we'd done a devices to Westminster together whilst we was in the Marines. Um, and incidentally, we won it that year as well. <laughs> not, not out, but as the Marines thing, so it's tough to bits. But that was pretty nails. And um, Frank had left as well. Both of us despondent. And uh, I was on having a drink with him at a barbecue. And he said, you know what, guys, I'm going to go back in. And I said, yeah, I think I might, Frank. And I'd also had already applied for the fire brigade, but hadn't heard anything. And uh, London fire brigade. So um, Frank's dates come up to go back in. And I was thinking, do I go, do I not go? And then my dates came for the fire brigade. So I went to the fire brigade and Frank went back to um, to join up. And he spent another 20 years, but as SBS, you know, um, because I think when you join up from a boy and you go through, 
you're in that system. You've got no life skills. You don't see what goes on outside. But once you've been in, and then you go out and you see how hard life can be, how jack life can be, how how crap it can be out here, to be fair. You know, it's just a, you're on your own. You don't realise what a good job the military can be. I'm not saying it is all the time, because we all know it can be pretty pretty dire as well. Um, it re- the courses you can get onto and the way that you can move forward and different you know there's a lot you can actually do but you don't realize that as a young as certainly me as a young marine all i wanted to do is sort of uh, get in the field try and get on any operations that we could or come back smashing out the fizz getting ashore getting absolutely shedded and uh, uh, the ladies of course you know but yeah it's just part of it and uh, yes, yeah, so when I left, I thought I'd walk into anything. Um, Fire Brigade came up. I got into there. I went to Westminster to start with. You've got to do a year at your, at your fire station and then get signed off, as you know. Um, I then went to Euston, and the governor there was ex Warren Marines. And you're supposed to, I think it's four years qualified. I can't remember the timing, but yeah, be four years qualified before you could go on to the fire rescue unit uh, to do a course. And because it's bootnecks um, looking after each other. I was there for probably a couple of months and he said, you're on the FRU course. And that to me was absolutely fantastic. It was an old school crew. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with today's brigade. Um, it isn't a brigade that I sort of recognise and understand. It's all gone a little bit PC for my liking. Um, but that was absolutely a fantastic job. The money was rubbish. The shifts were good. But when we got to work, you know, you can't, there is no words for doing a rescue and someone living, you know, um, some of the stuff that we do is harrowing, you know. Um, I don't know what we do, the type of person that you are. Some people have a cry. It's never bothered me, none of that. You know, we used to go to one-unders all the time, people under trains, fast RTAs or RTCs as they are now, motorbike versus car, motorbike versus street furniture, big fires. And none of that has ever bothered me. Um, I was in a fire, um, literally just at a fire at Kensington's ground, and I was on a standby. And I came out, my phone was going off. This is in 2003. My phone was going off in my pocket. Obviously, I couldn't answer it, knocking, knocking the fire out. Well, I came out, making all the kit up, and I'd look at the phone, didn't recognise the number, but called it. And it was one of my mates from the corps, Pete. And he said, uh, Gas, um, do you want to come out to Iraq? And the war, literally, that must have been about May, May time, because the war just finished. And it says, yeah, about May, April. And I said, uh, yeah, he said, excellent money out here, mate. And he, you'll love it. And I said, who's out there? And he told me a couple of names. I said, yeah, count me in. So I went back to the station. And I said to the governor, I said, how do I go about leaving the job? And he said, what? I said, I'm, I'm going to shoot off to Baghdad for a little bit. And he went, what? I said, yeah, so I can go next week. I just, I've had enough. And all the politics and all that, not crap money, I'm going to go out there. And he went, Gaz, you're mad. And I said, yeah, maybe. And uh, that was it. I went out to Baghdad. Um, I jumped on the... Um, started for the PSDs, you know, um, private security details or PMCs, private military contractors uh, for a big company. And it was all the high profile stuff. And that was never me. I never liked it from the off. All the hard drills, the cars blocking and stuff like that, gunmen everywhere. And I, I just thought, I don't like this. It's not, not for me. You're going to get smashed one day. And at that time, there wasn't that much going on from Al-Qaeda and the insurgents at the um, we had probably about Ramadan, about August time, and they blew up, a, tried to blow up a big embassy. It might have been a Turkish embassy, massive car bomb. And then a couple of weeks later, I think the chief of party of the UN got killed in a huge truck explosion, 
and loads of people and, and from there on it just went mental and uh, I see these lads cutting about and at first I thought they was all uh, SF guys because I know a lot of the teams that were out there as well I thought it was all the SF guys and we was out at a bar having a drink on a Thursday night and I was like guys come over with us and uh, said so who were, were they and it was mainly uh, debt lads SPS SAS guys and uh, said yeah went over there and doing their profile and all my time in Baghdad barring um as you're reading the book and i won't go into it too much but there was only one guy said to take to take a maroon mercedes out i said i ain't seen a maroon mercedes here i don't want to take that out he said take it out and we took it out and that's the only contact i've got in with small lines out there whilst we was doing soft skin um but when we done the, the high profile stuff doing the armored because of insurance policies uh to do the airport run from baghdad international airport along route irish back to the green zone uh, we had to switch to armoured cars, which I, I, I hated. I'd like to go and be battered up old little Datsun and, you know, little bit jingly music on, baby bottles sit on, on a dashboard and stuff, just cutting about, no weapons on show, nothing. And um, we had no trouble like that. But when we switched to the to the armoureds, within a couple of months, VBID come up, vehicle born, obviously teach it to suck eggs here, but vehicle born, suicide bomber. And uh, he detonated next to one of the team, blew him off for the the, uh, the bypass, six, eight ton vehicle, whatever they are, upside down, landed upside down, everybody killed instantly on fire. Um, all rounds and that cooking off, and other bits of kit that they were in the vehicle was all cooking off, so no one could get near it. Um, so that was, that was, I, I don't like armoured in that scenario. Um, the, another time I was actually driving an armoured vehicle to go, Land Cruiser, to go to the central bank. And the clients wanted to go in, and I was thinking, I don't want to go in the armors, but this is what the client wants. You know, they pay the bills. So even though operationally we can say to them, look, we advise you to do this, this, and this, the central bank, because it was just one road going in, and it, there was no escape route from it. Once you're on that road, you're on that road. It was, it was a, it was a waiting to happen, if you like. And uh, I was driving down there. I was driving with Ritzy, my team. The Bravo car was behind. Two clients in the car. And as we was coming down the central road, it's quite narrow, I see a, uh, like a little barra boy, and he was walking with this wooden barra, fair hair. And I just remember him thinking, son, you're yeah, having blonde hair kid out here, you know? And he sort of swung his, his barra and come across the road a little bit. So as I put my foot on the brake, a huge detonation, and I thought, surely that ain't the kid, well, after, but I thought, can't be a suicide bomber, that kid, surely. Um, but I felt the car going over to the right and then come back down, I opened my eyes, I don't know why I shut my eyes, I opened my eyes and it looked like we'd dropped in the English Channel, just the, the glass, all the windows, all peppered and just grey, green. And uh, I remember looking down at my legs, and getting older steering wheel, and then grabbing hold of the gear lead, was slamming it into low and just putting the foot down. Now, I knew that kid was in front of me, but my job, I know it sounds horrific, but our job at that time as a bodyguard to get, we was in contact. You know, I haven't got time to get out and check on that little boy, you know. And fortunately, I say fortunately for him because he would have been hit by a six-ton vehicle otherwise, but uh, the explosion killed him and five others. But, um, yeah, that's, the armour cars, I don't really like them at all. Um, so doing all that sort of stuff, cutting about. And in 2007, four of the lads got kidnapped at the Ministry of Finance in Baghdad. And that was just a, a, a bluff, really. The, we believe it was Iranian-led Al-Quds, um, and they took them, kidnapped them, took them off to Sadr City. Um, and for a couple of years, we thought they was alive, had a proof of life, and then near Christmas time. 
and they they were sadly yeah they were all tortured and executed uh, yeah but you know it could have happened to any of us we all take the money and you know I still think about all of them to this day Jason Creswell and, and Al McManning especially um, very very close friends of mine you know mm. we all know the score though with, with the job so it, it's what it is um, so that was that in 2007 the end of seven I decided to go out to Afghanistan I was out there working for the FCO done a cracking job man I loved it down in Helmand uh, down at Mr. Carla Goresk Sangin uh, spent most of my time actually at Sangin sorry at Goresk at Fob Price or Fob Nice and uh, it was it was a crack we, we loved it and the US Special Forces were there the Danes were there so me and Nick and God bless he's been killed since by Vibid in Mosul uh, when he decided to go back to Iraq uh, so we went out there and it was just fantastic the hearts and my side of things I guess like being in, in a fire brigade or I much prefer to save people's lives than take a life, of course. But that said, you know, whether it be the IRA, whether it be some slag over here or, or whatever, you know, you point a gun at me and try and hurt me, and if I've got a weapon, you know, win or lose, sorry, mate, you're down. That's, that's for me, you don't really lose much sleep on it. Um, so, yeah, to work with all the SF guys out there and to do the medical skills was fantastic. Got to do so, so much, which I'd never, ever be allowed to do over here. And that was to help with a chest drain. Uh, one of the guys, one of the, the ANA guys that had been blown up and he'd burnt and all his skin was contracting. And they just cut him down into the muscle, the depth of his muscles, uh, down the front, the shin, uh, the back, the calf, the sides. And I can't remember what they called it now, but he sort of released all the pressure. And putting lines in, I was like a, I was like a dart player in the end. I, I could have stood across the room and got, <laughs> got a line in. I'm not that good with them, you know, but that's what we did. And I very much enjoyed that. Um, then in, I think, probably about 2009, I decided to go to media security. And that's where I really found my feet. That's, that, is, that was me all over. I absolutely love it. Still love it now. Still do quite a bit. Not as much as I was doing because I'll go into that in a little while. But um, the media stuff, you are, for the most part, by yourself. You know, you've got to be confident but not cocky you've got to understand and not be overwhelming um, a lot of the media people come from university backgrounds they're not military people like us so you've got to be a team player um, and understand that this job is a role reversal again it's like fire brigade you know if there's a fire we're going into it you know everyone else is coming out and that's what it is when you're doing a media you've got to weigh that up because I've got to get a crew into where that is the action's happening but at the same time, making sure I've got an escape room, if possible, or we, we're going to be okay. I can look after them. And for the most part, I have done. I have done. Um, and, yeah, been all over the place. Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Mosul, Libya, um, uh, Indonesia. So, yeah, all over the place, you know. And Ukraine, for me, was a massive one. Uh, I'll go into that back in um in libya so so in 2007 we had the guys that got been kidnapped as i say in 2011 i went out to libya to cover the conflict looking after the bbc um and whilst there towards probably about july time i took a, a little bit of leave and whilst i was home on leave itn had called and said can i take them out i said yeah of course I can. so we, we went out there and the battle was on the turn just going to drink water excuse yes all right 
So um, the battle was about to turn in favour of the resistance of the, the rebels, the uprising. Gaddafi was on the back foot. And as we drove into a town called Zawiya, which is on the um, the west of Tripoli, about 60 kilometres or so, maybe a little bit further, the battle was absolutely mental, absolutely mental. I mean, if you go onto, onto my Instagram page, and there's some bits and pieces from there, and it was full on. Um, whilst we were driving around, we had like a, a Toyota pickup at one stage, and I had my fixer, and he was stood in the back there. And as we drove down, a tank round, or some sort of, munitions had hit a tree, a tree not too far from our left and the tree comes straight down bounced on the cab and actually hit the guy in the back and I was like right, get everyone out get him in the hard cover get around the back there check me man make sure everyone's all right are we still in line of sight you're looking for your escape routes get the tree off of the car if we can which we did and the, the guy in the back there he was, he was gurgling away and his arm was broken and as I was trying to at first I thought he was losing consciousness totally out of it but just gurgling away and as I check, checked on his chest, on one side I was totally crushed. As I say, big. So I was looking at them for um, attention, lemma thorax, collapse lung. Start watching his throat moving over to one side. And um, <laughs> it was, again, it was Ramadan. And I just remember that I thought, if we have to do mouth to mouth, like no disrespect to the guy, but he's not smelling too hygiene, like uh, the hygiene's not too clever, to be fair. So I said to the cameraman, I said, if we do any CPR, I'll do the compressions, you do the mouth. And he was like, yeah, okay, okay. And I said, oh. so, I mean, anyway, I drove him off to the field hospital with the guys in there, and uh, he survived. He survived. He had massive damage to, to one side, and uh, we saved his life. So that, that was pretty cool. We went from there into that night. As the battle was moving down the highway towards Tripoli, it was getting dark. And I said to the team, I said, look, guys, I'm happy for us to go to Tripoli to follow up this battle during dark o'clock, only if the atmospherics is good. I said, if I see traffic and everything, I'm happy with it, we're okay. I said, if we say it's off, then we're coming back here. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no problem. So we drove down to Tripoli. Uh, we got there without any major incident, really. Got into Green Square. As we got there, Sky News came in a little bit later. Al Jazeera came in, and they was all doing a little bit of filming. Then the jungle drums start going. The intelligence is saying that there's going to be a counterattack by the Gaddafi troops. They're coming to Green Square. And I said, look, fellas, we're going to lift off. Um, I know where the BBC and a lot of the media are staying at the Rixos Hotel, which was a Gaddafi-owned hotel. Um, I said, we'd, I'll phone up the BBC security guy and see what the situation is. Bearing in mind, I've now got two drivers from Zawiya that are driving us down in there. So they're from a rebel-held town. So that I was always conscious of that in case of running into checkpoints and whatever. And they would have just been executed on the, on the spot, I guess. Uh, so we drove, I phoned the BBC guy. He said, yeah, come here, guys. There's no Gaddafi troops. Excellent. So I drove down. As we got down towards the hotel, there's a lot of small arms firing at bounce we've been the lights on the vehicle still creeping forward and uh, drove into the hotel and as we got into the hotel there i went and got a master key so i could get all the rooms uh talking had a quick brief from the lads there was other security guys in there there as well as a lot of a lot of media cnn bbc reuters okay lot, lots of media in there and uh, i got a shout from outside and some technicals came in with gaddafi troops i was like shit so i got some two these two drivers run them up into one of the rooms, hit them in the room, and I spent five days just moving them around from room to room, bouncing over the balconies. And every single day, the battle would start. You'd get a call for prayer, 
and they would all do their Alarak bar bits and singing and shouting. Then they would uh, be a massive battle. Then you'd have a call to prayer again. Then it'd be an, a massive battle. So um, after a call to prayer in the morning, I was just having a little look at all the guys that were holding us. And it was about 10 blokes to start with, technicals out the front, all armed. Um, they wasn't being violent to us, which I didn't really understand at first. Because if you're going to take hostages, you want people to know that you're in charge. I guess like robbing a bank or when the police storm a house and they're screaming and shouting, flashbangs going, weapons pointing, hitting people, we're in charge. And there was none of that. So I presumed that they was keeping us human shields, which was the actual case. And on the fifth morning, I got intelligence from London on my satellite phone to say that um, there was a massive troop build-up in the woods, which was close to the hotel, less than 100 metres from the hotel, and it was building up. And it looked like they was going to come through the hotel. So I got all the security guys together. I said, look, we need to get out of here today. I said, I've been through a little walk around. I said, I can only see three gunmen today. So I've only one of when one of them comes round, he either gets the good news or give him a good idea and take him up with a masking table or whatever. That's one weapon. The second one will come round and say, where's such and such? He gets the good news, two weapons. We can elephant march out if we need to and we've got weapons to, to defend ourselves. And uh, everyone was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then one guy said, no, no, I think we should just wait and see what happens. Now, bearing in mind, I'm thinking of 2007 about the lads being kidnapped and I didn't want to be a YouTube sensation getting my head cut off by ISIS or nothing. Uh, so that was never an option for me. Escape at the earliest opportunity, you know, unless it's, it's totally impossible to do so. The further down the line you go, the harder it's going to be to escape. So um, I went out and done a little recce by myself and I found a route that we could actually go out of. And um, I came back into the hotel, got our guys, I put my two drivers inside the, another room, told them I'll be back for them later, got ITN crew together, managed to get out, got onto the actual open road, and then a vehicle come down the road, just one vehicle by itself. And as it's getting closer, I'm looking, I'm thinking, has he got any uniform on? Can I see weapons in it inside? And there was nothing there. And uh, as he come turned towards us, I said to the lads, get down near this wall. And there was like a little ditch with, I don't know, olive trees or something down there. And I just said, to just wait there, I'm going to see if I can get us a lift. And just <laughs> like, like what you see on the films, maybe I watched too many films. Well, I was pretending I had a damaged leg, and I was sort of hobbling down waving him down, waving him down. And he stopped for me and I looked, looked had a quick look inside, no weapon, still not in no uniform. I opened the door and I was like, Siddiqui, Siddiqui, uh, media, media, friend. And he, he looked at me and I pulled the door, it's like a sliding door, like the helicopters uh, at the back. And I said to the guys, get in, get in, get in. And this bunch just looking at us, like, oh, fuck you lot. They'll come running, get into his car. And he said, drive. And he drove us around the corner. And as we got there, there was cars on fire. There was like a couple of unfortunate, couple of dead people that were on the road um, and it was just a, a straight road and I thought I ain't going down there that's just a sniper's alley no chance and I were at T, uh, 252 down the end there nah ain't gonna happen and uh, T72 sorry I thought nah ain't gonna happen and uh, with that I said to him turn around turn around so we turned around went back the way we just come not far from the hotel now over the bridge as we come down the bridge, they're sitting there with barrel facing us as a tank. And I was like, oh, no, please don't be Gaddafi troops. So I got my high-vis panel out, said to the, all the media crew, said, guys, as I briefed you before, the vehicle is always going to be the bullet magnet. They're not going to be aiming at an individual person. They're going to aim at the car, all right? As soon as this windscreen pops, the rest of it, you just get out of these cars, out of doors, out to left and right, get yourself in the cover like that. So if I get injured and all the rest of it, they'll deal with it later on, like whoever's just shot me as such. 
And uh, so I'm high, waving my high-vis panel, and this guy's just looking down next to this tank at the checkpoint. And I said, just creep forward, creep forward. So I'm still got hands out the side there, high-vis panel, telling me drivers, uh, slow, slow. And we got there, and a guy called us forward. And we got to see the little, the rebel flag flying. Oh, thank, thank God for that, you know. Drove into uh, about a, kilometer, a couple of kilometers further on, got into a rebel-held area. And then we, we as consultants, that should have been my job done. You know, I've got them out, done what I've done. And we're not supposed to get involved in combat because we're meant to sit on the fence. Our priority is our client and it's their security, safety and medical if, if they require it. But this day, still got the rest of the media there. Plus, I had two, two drivers that were still inside. So I briefed up a couple of hundred rebels and we went back several hours later to attack the hotel to get rid of the gunmen and release the rest of the world's media. But unbeknown to us, during our time that we was doing our escape and evasion through Tripoli, the Red Cross had negotiated their release and got the rest of the world's media out. So when I went back with a couple of hundred rebels, you'll see some Al Jazeera footage and you'll see all the technicals going towards the hotel and you'll see a white way that's sitting there like that. That, that was me <laughs> trying to keep off the camera going in. So we went back into the hotel. No one there had been trashed. And I went up to the room where I left the two drivers and they were still there waiting. And their eyes just lit up. And it's, oh, Mr. Gary, Mr. Gary. So it's good, good, we go. So I saved them. Um, and I went from there to um, Afghanistan. Whilst I was out in Afghanistan, I got injured. Um, just teaching out there, um, arresting restraint. I was actually teaching up a new guard force down at Kandahar Airfield, that's on, on base itself, on the camp itself. And uh, I was doing arrest and restraint with these guys. At about midnight, I was I started puking up, feeling bad, pain in my guts. And about four o'clock in the morning, I was still puking. I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go to roll free. So I got my flip flops on, put my pistol on out into my shorts there, <laughs> like that. Drove down towards Roll Free, still dark. As I drove down, I've gone doo -doo -doo over something. I'm like, what the fuck's that? And a cat ran out. And I thought, everything in this country is a suicide thing. Do you know what I mean? Everything wants to die. What's going on? I was like, it's not bad. I can't have a little look. Couldn't see this cat, but here it's like the old Oh, dear, oh, dear. Drove down to Roll Free, got in to see the, the doctor, an American guy. And he said to me, You don't think you're a constipated, do you, son? And I was like, Yeah, good one. And he, <laughs> he was just saying to Mickey. So, uh, they put me on a CAT scan and he said, look, mate, he said, your war's finished. I said, why? He said, you're leaking shit into your body cavity. I said, how? He said, I don't know. He said, we're going to have to operate because obviously you're poisoning yourself. And I was like, right, right, okay. Um, so uh, I got put onto this um, this scan for now, had a good look at me. I was getting ready for them to do surgery and all the alarms went off. Um, being canned, I just thought waiting for the rockets and it to come in. But it was none. It was, uh, turns out that unfortunately a load of British lads got killed that, that morning by a, uh, by a bomb, IED. But they was all in an armoured fighting vehicle. And uh, that's actually in my book. There's a little section about them guys, God bless them all, that uh, they got killed. Um, and I was actually there as they was all getting flown in down at Caf and Sebastian. And uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I was pushed to one side. Uh, I got Cassie back from there. Got sent to the UK. I went to Norfolk Park Hospital and they did keyhole surgery 
to fix whatever was wrong. And it turns out that I had a condition called diverticulitis. I, I didn't know what that was, but that's down to the Western diet. Our diet's pretty crap, apparently. We're meant to eat like cavemen, but we don't. We just go and have burgers and pizza, Indians. And, you know, we, we don't eat pro as, as we should. Um, so that, over a lifetime, caused polyps on your intestine wall and getting the impact. And bearing in mind, I've been boxing all my life, teaching unarmed combat all my life, etc., etc., and uh, caused them to rupture. So, yeah, um, he said to me, the doctor, he said, get up and go for a walk. So I've done that, and I just felt something go inside. The pain was excruciating. And uh, unfortunately, it, it split apart the, the operation they had done. So they had to open me right up then. And I was on a colostomy bag for two years, four big surgeries. And, you know, that was that absolutely destroyed me. Absolutely destroyed me in a, in a massive way. Just felt so dehumanised. I couldn't do anything. I went down to the gym and I've, instead of just doing two plates on the bar, you normally do, it, I, I couldn't even do the bar. You know, I was just like that. And I sat down on a bench and all you could smell was like shit from your bag. And I was like, fuck. You know, uh, my girlfriend at the time then, Sam, obviously, like there's the, the bag there's there and was there for me all the time. Um, I, after two years, I then went back to go back to work and the ITN head of security had changed. He'd come from the BBC. So when I went back to go to work, I said, hello, mate, um, I'm back now, good to go. He said, oh, we can't use you, Gaz. I'm like, sorry? He said, we can't use you. I was like, why? He said, oh, after you all fuck up in Libya, he said, you nearly got everyone killed. Right. I was like, hey. All right. Now, if I was serving, I would have probably got a military cross to go out of a battle, through a battle, to come back from a battle, to, you know, but all the knives went into my back. And it turns out that the head of security at ITN had said when he was at the BBC to one of the BBC guys I went to rescue, he said, how comes Gary Curtis escaped and you never? And this individual said, oh, Gary nearly got everyone killed. Gary did this, Gary did that. Turns out he was embarrassed that he got rescued and I escaped successfully when he should have done, but he didn't. So um, the knives went in, so I was dropped by BBC. I was dropped by ITV. Um, and then I got a chance to go out to the Ukraine to look after the... Um, Al Jazeera crew and again all this stuff there's a lot of little bits all over Facebook and, and Instagram so a lot of people can actually see the clips of that from there and I've got to go to Ukraine um, and because I was in so much debt by now because I've been off for two years I wasn't entitled mm. to any money coming in and all my savings and that had gone I was in a bit of a bad way pretty depressed as well to be fair so I went out there to Ukraine um, and I managed to stay out there for nearly a year solidly and stupidly Going on to the front lines for a couple of days or coming back or just going out every day. Um, I used to go and use the gym at a hotel and it become my norm. Just become my normal life out there. And I met Oksana, beautiful, um, a beautiful Ukrainian girl. Um, she divorced her husband for me. I was having a full-on affair then, if you like. Uh, fell in love with another woman, but still had my girlfriend back here, which was my world, Sam. And, uh, yeah... It become messy. It become proper messy, as you can imagine. So the new guy took over, new security guy took over at New York Times. He came out and he went, oh, you know, such and such from the BBC, didn't you? Same, the guy that I tried to rescue. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, oh, what's the record on him? I was like, yeah, yeah, good lad. And I'm through gritted teeth. Like, well, yeah. And uh, <laughs> that was it. I went on leave and uh, I wasn't used by him again for for some considerable time. Um all because of these lies, and it destroyed me, absolutely destroyed me. So I managed to claw back a little bit of money, came home on leave, as I say, 
me and Sam had split up. Um, I wasn't getting work because the knives had gone in through his lies. Um, I was depressed. I just not long come out of that surgery, as I say, only a year or so before that. Um, and I, I had nothing. They was gonna, they was gonna take my house. They was gonna, I had bailiffs knocking on the door. I had nothing. And my little girl said to us one day, "Can I have some school shoes, Dad?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, of course you can." And I, I, I had nothing, literally nothing. And uh, I remember this particular morning. I just, uh, I got in, been for a run, got in the shower. And I sat there and thought, I, just, I can't do it. I can't do it. Now, bearing in mind, when I was in the fire brigade, as you know yourself, Gaz, I go to a lot of suicides, people that are hung up or people that are under trains. You know, we go to it all the time. And you think, why well, have you done that? Didn't really get it. But when I got to that position, that dark day, I totally, totally get it now. And that's what part of the book is about as well, is to, you've got to talk. You've got to talk. We, we can't be a man. We can't be that, that alpha male all the time. You, you really have because in the end, your life glass will, will overflow. And mine did, not through the shit that I've seen and the stuff that I've done. Mine was through a broken heart, finance and, and the work that I wasn't getting. Um, so, yeah, I was in the shower and I thought, I can't do it. I can't do it. So I walked out to, uh, into the bedroom, got my med kit. Got out a grey gauge cannula and I cannulated my wrist. Just sat there, just watching the blood go pumping out of me. And uh, I lost consciousness. Don't remember losing consciousness, obviously. And I woke up to what I can only describe as a death rattle. And uh, and uh, <laughs> I just woke up to this death rattle and I was freezing cold and my heart was going a million miles an hour. And I looked at the cannula and it was just a tiny little trickle coming out. That grey gauge cannula should have, cannulate, uh, should have blocked up. And this had, you know. And I, I remember looking about and thinking, am I dead? It's fucking freezing. I'm like, where is everybody? Where's my man? Where's my mates? Where's this white light that everyone's on about? Didn't have none of that. It was just black. I'm like, what's going on here? This is crap. You know, what a, typical. I messed up again. You <laughs> know, couldn't work it out. And uh, I stood up and I just collapsed straight away, smashed my head into the shower. And uh, I just cried, just cried and cried and cried. I made, made my way to the, to the bedroom crawling. I mean, literally, my heart was going to go. Uh, left my phone in the, in the bathroom then, so I couldn't make a phone call. I now wanted to live after that failed attempt. <laughs> it's mad, but I did, true. And, uh, yeah, I, I tried to get my missus, on, or then, the then missus, um, on Skype. And I said, look, I've done something bad. Uh, I need help. So my dad turned up at the door and he was banging on the door. So I made the Skype call him. I said, I can't get to the door. I'm going to die. Uh, you're going to have to get the police. And the police turned up. They rammed the door, smashed the door down uh, with the paramedics. And all that. they came in, asked me what I'd done. I said, well, obviously, just candidate my wrist. I've had enough. Just wanted out. I'm just, you know, my dad's there now. I've been bits and he's a proper man's man. And I said, go and put the kettle on, Dad. I was just laying in. Yeah, it was awful. Uh, and they couldn't get a line into me, the paramedics. And uh, I just said, look, you might have to do an IO. And they said, what do you know about IOs? And I said, just you know, medic working in the field. It's a kit that we use or can use. And she said, yeah, we've got a London Air, uh, London Air Ambulance coming. And with that right on cue, the Air Ambulance come over the flat where I live, landed in the park nearby, and they all come running in and doing their work. And, uh, yeah, I was put onto this chair downstairs. And as I went out on the street... <laughs> As I went out onto the street, every man and his dog, like, what's happening for this NHS clap? 
they was all there. Everyone was there looking. Oh, I know what he's done. I thought, I'm meant to be dead. I've turned into the streets entertainment, like the, the local, <laughs> the local nut nut. <laughs> for what, what's going on here? But um, yeah, I went to hospital. I had a chat with them. They didn't say that I needed to see anybody or anything like that. I just told them that, you know, I just come to you and me tell And from that day onwards, I started to write a book. I totally understood where people come. I understand that everybody can break. I understand that it, it doesn't have to be trauma or anything. Like for me, it was finance and, and my professional work. And as I say, broken heart, nothing to do with the work. I go back time and time and time again. Um, so that was that. Um, then I tried to get back with the girl, that then girlfriend. Um, I managed to get out to Mosul. Um, came home and leave, went to see her. She didn't want to see me. Her friend called the police. No threats, no violence. I was drinking milk. No threats, no violence, nothing like that. They came in, took me to the police station. They said, we need to check your phone like you've been harassing us. I didn't harass her at all. Um, but they kept my phones. I decided I need. I was just falling apart. I was on the piss. I was out partying. I was, I was just a mess, an absolute mess. I've gone four. I'm still overweight now. Doing quite a bit of fizz now to get it back down. But I just thought, wow, you know, what, what is going on? So I needed that focus. So I said to me mate Barry, Barry O'Connell from the State of Mind, uh, Jim in Hammersmith, who used to train Georgie Groves. Uh, I said, mate, I need a fight. He said, you can't fight now, I guess. He said, you're about four stone overweight. He said, how old are you? I said, well, 48 then. Right. And he, he said, no, mate, he said, you'll get hurt. I said, Bash, just get us a fight, for fuck's sake. And he said, Gaz. And I was like, so I won the spa, and I was thinking, oh, that, that hurts. I don't remember hurting like this against Dean Richardson, who's a Southern Area champion now, and a great, great boxer. And he got me this fight with a former Army heavyweight champion, I believe, a guy called Dave Deacon. Like that, natural heavyweight, <laughs> knocking people over. I said, yeah, that'll do, we'll have it. So I got in there and I'm sort of looking up at this bloke. I've got in and I'm trying to go with the jabs and all that long and move. And listen, most most fights are won in the gym. And I know that I've got 40 odd fights under my belt and uh, I went in there so unfit. And this kid caught me. I took my first kneeling ever. And I looked over at Barry and Barry was going, will you box, box? And I was going, no, he wants to fight. And it was just like a bar fight. So again, on the social media, you know, and uh, that's it. I got put on my arse and I had to shake his hand and say, best man won. But I was in a mess, in a big, big mess. I then went from there to Mosul. Again, uh, a big attack out there. Big mortar attack came in on our immediate area. A load of people that were killed and injured. I put all the, the clients for New York Times uh, now looking after them again, put them into uh, into hardcover, listen for any more launches, nothing. Went back outside to start working with the casualties and then the photographer came out and the writer came out and he was doing a little bit. So I just said to him, guys, if I tell you to get back inside at any time, you need to go immediately. And they're like, yeah. Um, and there was one guy, his chest was all peppered and his wife was shouting to me in English. She was saying, make him live, please don't let him die, please don't let him die. And I was there, did a bit of work on him and I just, that was it, took his last breath, his eyes as they do, he just went wide. Uh, so that was that, he was gone. But I put him into the Humvee with the uh, US, uh, sorry, with the Iraqi Special Forces guys. And I said to his wife, he's going to be all right, which, do you know, I, I don't know whether I did the right thing there, really. I just wanted to protect her, I guess. I, I don't know. I, I, I said he was going to be all right, but he was dead when we put him on there. Hmm. Yeah. So with that, um, there was another guy, SF guy, that his leg, big cuts in his leg and all that. It wasn't a femoral bleed, but a lot, a lot of bleeding. Put a tourniquet on him, got some bandages on him. He got carted off and he lived. 
and a little boy, and you'll see the photographs again on there. He got bought up, and as he got put into our hands, all his guts and it spilled out. So I just pushed his guts back into the hole as best I could, tucked his jumper over, put him on the back of the wagon, and he got Cassie backed, and he survived. He survived the little lad, so I was chuffed to hear that. But after that, I came back to Erbil about a couple of days later, and uh, I phoned the ex, which I wasn't allowed to do. Um, landed, at, I, I called her to talk to her, nothing. Landed at Heathrow. Uh, the armed police came on, arrested me. Uh, I got taken to Heathrow Police Station because it's a breach of a court order. I got taken to Heathrow Police Station. I got then picked up by Hertfordshire Police, where she lived. Got taken there. It was a Friday, so I had to spend Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday in cells. And I think we had court on a Tuesday or a Monday, one of the two. Went to court um, because it was a breach of a court order, a uh, criminal record, seven grand fine, seven grand. Like that. I was like, what the fuck? I've done nothing wrong. I had an affair. I've done nothing wrong. I still can't get it in my head now you know, because it's all TikTok that you have got to be a robot. You do as we say. And I think, no, no, I've done nothing wrong. But it is what it is. So uh, the criminal record, I lost my SIA licence when I had to renew that for close protection. So work over in the UK, I can't do unless I go as a medical or consultant or a driver. Um, it's just been an absolute nightmare again for me. But conflicts-wise, still doing a lot. Backwards and forwards to Syria, looking after some different networks and whatever. Um, sadly, due to those lies that was told after the hostage situation and the management position, being friends with this guy, it's it's. I went from being one of the country's busiest operators on that front to literally work drying up, you know. Um, but we keep surviving, we keep battling through. Uh, I'll move forward now. It's been a couple of years. I'm now with uh, Joanna. She's started showing me life again. Beautiful girl looking after me, putting a smile back on my face. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, it is what it is, mate. It is what it is. Gary, I can honestly say, you, you, I feel like you've lived about four lives, to be honest. Um, <laughs> obviously, mentioning your, mentioning your suicide attempt, um, I suppose that gives a bit of clarity that life begins again after that to, to, a, to a point. Um, but kind of listening to your story, I'd say you've probably done that about four times. Do you know what, mate? I'll tell you, the one thing that I thought after the suicide was uh, I'll never do that again. Never do that again. But there has been a couple of times since financial problems that I just thought, fuck, this, this is, I just, I can't keep doing this. Because before I was, not without being big-headed, but my life was very comfortable. I was doing, I was fit, I was, I was doing work, I was in demand. And that was all taken away, all taken away. And I was just, fuck, so frustrated. And there is no structure in our industry that you can put a complaint in or get things right. So when people are in the chair, you can't do nothing about it, mm. you know? Um, and part of me, a lot of people say, let it go, Gaz, but it destroyed my life and I can't let it go. And I'm not saying I'm punchy anymore, but I don't particularly want to see a couple of them, you know? So it's just, uh, I can't, they, they, they ruined me for a little bit, but you've, you've got to move on. It's how, how we move on, but it was a very, 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 very bitter pill for me to swallow and that's why the book was mainly about is the suicide well that's wrong really that a lot of people have said to me that my life seems quite exciting all the, the conflicts that i've been to and the stuff that i do and the people that i've looked after because i've looked after celebrities and that as well which i haven't really gone into at all um and they say you should do that as a book and being in security was always a no-no uh, but i thought you know what and when i sat there writing that book i absolutely cried my eyes out at some of it 
and other parts, I was just laughing my head off. And other lads that I talked to with different dits and different contacts that we've been in, or God knows what. And said, Do you remember this case? Do you remember that case? And then when we wrote the book, we had to take out about 200 pages. People were like, well, Who is this? Is he some sort of mitty? What's he done? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So we had to put all the photographs in with the book to sort of say, This is all Jen. You know, this is all true. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it is what it is. But for yourself, as a guys, you, doing these platforms is all I've got, mate. And I can't be thankful enough to people like yourself. Uh, there's guys that are on telly from TV, a very successful TV show um, that I work with, and uh, good luck to them. But, you know, I've asked them to try and help, and they just cold shoulder. And I sort of, I, one of them I used to be on, go out of them all the time. And I think, wow, you know, I, I was literally dead. I was literally dead from depression and suicide, and you could have helped, and they didn't. So when people like yourself show an interest, and that's why I put so much on social media. I've become a social media freak. I hate it. I hate, honestly, I hate it. But I do it because I have to do it, you know. And it's, um, it's, I'm blown away, mate. I'm touched. It means a lot. It does mean a lot, you know. No, the thing is, guys, for me and, and this podcast, you know, a lot of people with large profiles set up podcasts and it, it's a self-perpetuating cycle of the, they talk to people with large profiles and, it's yeah. like it just continues in that in that vein, and the, the reason for setting this podcast up was that you know normal people like yourselves and other guests that I'm going to have on and people like that uh, have got stories to tell as well, and they may not have the same sort of platform as yeah. some other people, but they deserve to be able to tell their story. And you know, reaching out to yourself, you know, it's a story that needs to be told. Um, and obviously, you're working towards that with your book, but yeah, you know, there's other means I, as well. I actually did. Um, the book's changing a little bit because. We've added back a couple more chapters, and the guy that's helped—excuse me—the guy that's helping me now is retweaking it because there's been a lot of TV and film people sort of showing interest in that as well. Um, so they've sort of tweaked it a little bit. It's still all real, but it's more. When I wrote the book, I know nothing. I'm just a raw marine, a firefighter, and a contractor. I know nothing about that. I can barely spell my name half of the time. You know, it just I, what you see is what you get. That's simple as that, and. Um, it needed to be structured a little bit more. Uh, the guy that I did it with initially said it had all been done and he hadn't, he hadn't paid anybody to do it. it just, we just put it out as it is. And if you go on the Amazon page, you'll see the reviews and people are loving it. But it does need a bit more professional touch. It is still available, but they're going to do that. However, I put my name and email on the back. Um, and you know what? Because I guess you've been there, seen it, done it, especially on the suicide or depression, I must get probably... 10 messages plus a week from people, you know, with all sorts of problems from all backgrounds, from both sexes, you know, or, or can you say both sexes now? However, however many sexes we've got in, in society these days, you know, they all get in touch or if they've got problems. And I'm no, there's no wand, there's no magic pill. I'm not a voodoo doctor. There's, there's nothing, I, just a bloke and I talk to him, you know, and it seems to help. It seems to help. And that in itself is worth it. It's it's good. It is good. Yeah. Absolutely, mate. Obviously, um before we before we started recording, we said we didn't want to go into stuff too deep because I, I genuinely want people to go out and buy the book because um yeah. you know I've started reading it and, and I will I will read it. I am a bit of an avid reader and you know you, your story is one that, that needs telling and I think one thing that's that's shone through throughout the entire podcast is you know you're a loyal, noble guy who ultimately just wants to help people, uh, long and short. So, you know, that's we're as, as, a, as a 
as a world, we're much better off with a Gary Curtis in it. So, you know, um, you can ask for girlfriend. I think she's so different at the minute. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But um, yeah, so uh, I'd, I'd wrap you up there, Gary. But where can where can people who are listening find you so they can learn a bit more about you and, and get all of your book and stuff like that? Uh, Gary Curtis on Instagram. Uh, two R's in Gary. Uh, Gary Curtis on Facebook. Um, as I say, I'll, I will try and get back to everybody that gets in touch. I'm always on it. Again, the girlfriend's always telling me to get off the bloody phone. You know, uh, it is what it is. Um, so that's uh, and the books on it on Amazon.co.uk. Uh, incoming Gary Curtis. You know, so if anyone gets it, please put a review on there. Uh, it is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Gary, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Obviously, the sun's shining. People like to sit in garden in this weather. My wife's out there now baking. But, um, you know, thanks very much for your time, mate. And uh, we'll add uh, the links to your pages and stuff on the podcast when, when we get it out. And, mate, again, can't thank you enough. And, you know, keep keep fighting the good fight. And um, to, to those who are listening, make sure you check him out on Instagram for definitely, it's definitely worth a follow. Keep safe, mate. Take care. Cheers, mate. Thanks to everybody for tuning in for episode two. Uh, Again, leave a like, subscribe, review to the podcast. uh, And thanks very much. See you later.